and we have a little baby in this that was born in 1974, and it takes place in 2013, and she's a teenager because f*** you. That's why. Radio Drone. It's another Thursday night, and unfortunately, there is no Marquis de Suede with us tonight. He's got some boogle-boggle nonsense, I don't know, ooga-boogas going on at his house. So it is just me, Josh Hadley, and Cecil T. this week. That is correct. Hopefully Alex is back next week. But since he's not here this week, can you handle the Adam and Eve promo all by yourself? Oh, God, you're going to make me do this today? Yes. A little bit of background. Cecil's a bit punchy, just as a warning for the show. He's had a 14-hour work day. Yes, it's been a long day, so uh, let's see. Um, Go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME to get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the U.S., three free DVDs, and a free mystery gift at adamandeve.com, promo code DROME. There you go. You're not that punchy. I read it off a piece of paper. Cheater. (laughs) we're gonna do a retrospective that brad and i did we are going to talk about the texas chainsaw massacre movies reason we chose this one is jowski hasn't seen many of these so we had a different topic scheduled if alex was going to be here but since he's not just see someone i can go off on some tcm let's look back at 1974 the texas chainsaw massacre I want to point that out. For whatever reason, this is the only one of the of these movies where chain and saw are two different words. I don't know why, but that's always bothered me, but whatever. To the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974, directed by Toby Hooper, written by Kim Hinkle and Toby Hooper, this film became a smash. Before we get into the background, why do you like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 74? Well, first of all, the one thing is on just as a as a aside to your Texas chainsaw thing. It's funny that on the poster, chainsaw is one word, but then everywhere else that it's listed, it's always listed as two words. It's very odd. I wonder which did somebody mess up or was that intentional? I'm gonna what? I'm gonna guess by the fact that every other one is chainsaw as one word. It was most likely just a screw up. I actually have a little bit of background when we get into it that might explain that screw-up, but your thoughts before we get into the background of the Chainsaw Massacre. I love the the original movie. I I think it's just, it's one of those tentpole, just pivotal moments in horror history. When this movie came out, it, it just, it revolutionized the way that they were doing horror. It was so dirty and just gritty and it just felt uncomfortable and it's really not that gory which is kind of uh it's funny because i mean when you when you have when you think texas chainsaw massacre you have this visions of of just violence and limbs being hacked off i have a feeling i have a feeling some of that goes to how people how the sequels actually were and people are misremembering the first one because of the sequels Absolutely. Well, it's it's kind of like what happened later, the human centipede, whereas the 
people have this vision of what they think it is as opposed to what it really is because Toby Hooper was going for a PG rating and was shot. I want to point out PG-13 didn't exist, so it's R or PG. Yeah, it was. This was well before you know PG thirteen. So he was shooting for a PG. So a lot of the kills and whatnot happened off screen, and was shocked when it came back with an X. And but, uh, uh, had... I think it works better that way. In all honesty, I think it works better with the approach he took, whether it was for the right reason or not. And I, I think the reason people think it's so much more gory, even bef- not leaving the sequels out, is it's shot in an, not in like a found footage way, but in an almost documentary style format which even goes to the 16 millimeter that it was shot on that's the way documentaries and episodes of like like how 60 minutes those segments were shot on 16 millimeter so i think that unintentionally gave it a more realistic look that's how i kind of perceived it because that was also the thing where they were saying based on a true story even though it really wasn't i mean it was it was loosely based off of uh, Ed Gein and a few other serial killers, but they were trying to make it sound like this was a case that happened and this was the movie version of that. And a lot of people, you know, it got them into the theater because of that. It was a very uh, savvy marketing campaign that duped a lot of people into thinking that this really happened. Kind of really did, because it's based on Ed Gein, the Wisconsin I don't want to call him a serial killer because they only have confirmed he killed two people and that's not a serial killer. Murderer Ed Gein from Wisconsin wore faces from his victims and trussed them up and ate them and had lamps made out of human skin and whatnot. He never used a chainsaw. It didn't take place in Texas. He didn't terrorize families the way he did. Honestly, the Steve Ralsback Ed Gein movie is relatively accurate. They were very much stretching the based on a true story thing when it came to Chainsaw Massacre. Well, yeah, I mean, there was no family. Leatherface was a, you know, a monster of a man, but with the mind of a child that was being controlled by the family. So, yeah, they did did stretch it as far as they could. But, you know, but still, you know, it, it went by the based on a true story and it worked for him. So, the I mean, the original movie is just is still one of the all time greats and it holds up so well. I got the the remastered Blu-ray not too long ago and it's just it, there are a lot of old horror movies that sometimes if you show them to like a younger audience, they're like, oh, God, it's so slow or it's boring or whatever. I showed it to my wife, who is about 10 years younger than me. She was just terrified and she didn't like The Exorcist because she thought The Exorcist was slow. But she saw this and just thought it was terrifying. This is one of those films where I haven't seen the Blu-ray. The last one I got was the uh, the tin DVD set. This is one of those films that I think benefits from not being remastered. I actually think it looks more real and more documentary-ish on an old beat-up VHS than it does on the widescreen digital noise reduction DVD, but that's just me, maybe. I think they did a good job of cleaning up the picture, but still keeping that level of grit to it. I, I don't... it. It's it's still I think it it, it worked for me because I have I have various copies of it. I have it on VHS. I have uh, the old DVD that came out, you know, years and years ago. And then I got the, the Blu-ray and and uh, I think it just uh, that's the my my preferred viewing for it from now on now that I got that. 
just a little bit of trivia before we get into the history of this. Do you know who released the first VHS of this? Who was the first person to release this outside of the theater? No, but it's going to be funny, I have a feeling. Charles Band. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre, along with Halloween and a couple of other what we now consider iconic films, were some of the very first pickups from the then brand new Wizard Video. Wow. Let's, let's get into a bit, little bit of the history. The reason that this film has such a tumultuous history, and I'm not talking about the shooting, I'm talking about its distribution. This was distributed by Bryanston Pictures. Bryanston Pictures was the company that made Deep Throat, The Party at Kitty and Studs, more commonly known as the Italian Stallion, Flesh for Frankenstein, Deep Throat Part 2, Blood for Dracula. Bryanston Pictures was owned by the mob. This was owned straight out by the Pirano mob family and they were using it as a money laundering operation. You know, we put $100,000 into a movie, we clean it that way, so we get it back from our budget, and anything we make theatrically, that's just gravy. So this this movie literally was basically a tax shelter or a money laundering operation, as well as all of the Bryanston films. The fact that Bryanston was owned by the mob almost guaranteed that nobody on any of these films got paid. One of the producers of Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually went to the Bryanston office when he was not getting paid and they were ignoring his phone calls. And he, he said he actually slammed his hand down on the desk and then he remembered who he was talking to. And he said he didn't want to wind up buried beneath the pure, so he just let it go. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Piranos made a ton of money off the movie. $30 million theatrically off of the movie. No one involved in the movie made a goddamn cent. That's such a such a travesty. But al- also, you... only in the 70s could Bryanston have done this, huh? Oh, God, yeah. In an interview I saw with Gunnar Hansen, he was talking a little bit about that, and he was talking about how you know they, they never got royalties and all that stuff, and he said that, I think he said something to the tune of like 10 years after the movie came out, he got his first and only royalty check from it, and it was for $47. <laughs> And by the way, that's after Bryanson was broken up by by the U.S. Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Bryanson have... only lasted from seventy to seventy-five. They released twenty-three films, a couple of them pretty big films too. Leaving out the porno stuff, they were the ones that brought Way of the Dragon to America for from Bruce Lee. Like I said, they had the Andy Warhol movies. They had John Carpenter's Dark Star, Texas Chainsaw, Devil's Reign with Shatner, Coonskin from Ralph Bakshi. So they brought over some big films. Just no one at the time was willing to take on Bryanston because they went, yeah, um, I'd like to keep breathing. Deep Throat, even though it, it is a porno, I mean, it, it made a ton of money. So that's, you know, even a, a nice, you know, get for them. It, it just they really just got lucky with with all of these awesome movies that I'm sure they did not care about. They well, were just th- that, looking... that's that's the whole point. These were a money laundering operation. Toby Hooper said no one cared. And, you know, a lot of these movies, no one gave a shit because it was just there. I mean, you were guaranteed. They put $100,000 into this. They're guaranteed to at least make that back. And it's a money, money laundering operation for their prostitution and drug rings. And then profit, that's just pure profit. And then we're the mob. No one's going to bitch that we don't give them the royalties we promised. We're the mob. And if they do, they're going to wish that they hadn't. I I really wonder, though, I mean, could you imagine if this got put out by a legitimate source 
how much differently Toby Hooper's career could have went. It, like if he it, yeah. actually had money in his pocket. Yeah, because I think the fact that this was Bryanston, it, that also gave it that scarlet letter. Because after Bryanston got busted, a lot of their films, some of them fell into the public domain. Some were snatched up by other distributors. What would have happened if Texas Chainsaw had fallen into the public domain along with a few of the other Bryanston films that didn't get picked up by another source? Yeah, because there was that weird time where there were a lot of movies that just kind of fell. Even though they, they did well theatrically, they just didn't get into the VHS era and they just kind of got forgotten. We could very well not be talking about Texas Chainsaw now. It, it very well could not have been a franchise. Yeah. After this, Toby Hooper went on with his career and his his next, well, not his next film, but his next big film was essentially a remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eaten Alive. Eaten Alive, come on. You got the isolated location, the family of Hicks, the eating innocent victims that come through, the style it's shot. You tell me Eaten Alive isn't kind of a remake of Texas Chainsaw, just done a little differently. I'd say in the same vein as Texas Chainsaw. I, I don't know about remake, but, uh, you know, another um, another cannibal type movie. And then, you know, he went on his career, he was doing all this other stuff, and then Canon is doing really great. And then our next Texas Chainsaw entry is 1986, shot in 1985. 1986 is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I don't want to say Toby Hooper had complete control. He had complete creative control of the film as long as he stayed within budget. Problem was, Canon was having some financial problems, so halfway through filming, they cut his budget. So... He wasn't able to do what he originally wanted to do. This time, it's it's written by L.M. Kit Carson. Got a much, much bigger budget. It's got nationwide distribution by Canon. You got Dennis Hopper as our hero. Not his first role, but Bill Moseley as Chop Top, who would go on to be a classic. He actually got the same, the same old man for Mr. Sawyer back. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, when it went to the MPAA, was told... There's no way you're getting an R rating. There's no amount of cuts you can make. So this was one of the first of the 80s major distributed films that went out completely unrated. And Toby Hooper's pretty sure that's what killed it. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 had a budget of $4 million, and it did make back $8 million, But after advertising, he said... They were still way behind. Canon was not happy. They expected Texas Chainsaw 2 to start pulling in Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween numbers, and it just did not. So technically, it's a failure. Technically, it's not. Oh, TCM 2 is great. I remember the first time I saw it, it was hilarious because it's so much more of a black comedy than, uh, you know, the first one was more of a horror film. This one, it had horror elements, but there were just so many just really funny moments in it. Well, well to Toby Hooper is on record saying he didn't want to spoof the first film, but he kind of wanted to say, what if we remade it as a comedy? And it just, like uh, like you had mentioned with Mosley being Chop Top, is such a memorable character. The big chainsaw fight with Dennis Hopper and Leatherface. Uh, it's just, it's a real crowd pleaser of a movie if you're into this kind of film. 
I, I know when I had seen it, I uh, saw it with a bunch of friends, and it was one of those like split down the middle, like half the room loved it, half the film was just confused. I can also understand it not doing well theatrically, because if it did go out unrated, I'm sure it didn't hit nearly as many theaters as it would have if it had a rating attached, and so that right there is going to kill it. And it also is coming almost a decade after the first film, so... Over a decade, 12 years actually. Oh, it was 12. Okay, I'm backwards. Yeah, then it was over a decade from the uh, the first film. So that hurt it right there. And the other thing, too, was I think Freddy and Jason being out there, they, I guess, maybe seemed more like the cool villains. And uh, they were, tr- you know, and then uh, here comes Leatherface again. And maybe they thought that they were trying to capitalize on that, which they kind of were, but they weren't. Canon didn't really make a whole lot of slasher movies. So I, I-, I wouldn't call this one a capitalization. I, I- think this one canon at least one speaking for glenn and globus i think they really wanted to make if not a new franchise a more serious even though we're talking black comedy but a more serious kind of approach than the overtly goofy jason and freddy at that point maybe i'm overanalyzing it but yeah the the film was a, a disaster like i said theatrically they were expecting this to be a barn burner, and what they got was a slow boil. It made a lot of money on home video. The rating didn't matter there, so it actually made a lot more money on home video than it did anywhere else. Well, and you also had the Joe Bob Briggs thing. We have to point out, Joe Bob Briggs actually had a scene shot. He was playing Joe Bob Briggs for Texas Chainsaw 2, but it ended up being cut. He was working for Rolling Stone at the time, and so he went to cover this film for Rolling Stone. And since he loved Texas Chainsaw Massacre so much, they asked him to do a scene. So he plays himself as an annoying film critic coming out of the theater, getting him and his two female compatriots being killed by Leatherface and Chop Top. The scene ended up vanishing for many years, and unfortunately, the audio track is missing for most of it. So even when it's put back on the DVD, large chunks of the audio are missing, which is kind of a disappointment, since I'm a big Joe Bob Briggs fan. Yeah, that totally sucks. But like I said, since this film didn't do very well, then you had Canon's problems. So then eventually New Line bought this up. Now at this point, New New Line was being called the house that Freddy built, that this was New Line only existed because Freddy Krueger was part of it. They they wanted to make more slasher franchises, modern slashers, and they wanted to bring Leatherface into that. So when they commissioned Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, they were looking for a franchise. They wanted an anti-hero. They wanted the next Freddy and Jason to be Leatherface, and yet they didn't want to They didn't want any of the controversy or put any money behind it. We'll get into the history in a minute. What do you think of TCM3? I didn't see it in theaters. I remember, you know, I saw it on VHS. I actually had a really hard time getting it because every time I went to the the video store, it was always out. And then uh, I finally did see it. And um, I I liked it. Um, I thought it was like, okay, but it always seemed it always seemed like it was missing things. And then when the DVD came out and they actually put it out uncut it filled in a lot of the empty spots put some more of the gore back in put a little bit more of the story back in and it felt much more whole um it still was not on par with one and two but it wasn't nearly as bad as it was when it first came out like when it first came out it was like eh, that was okay that's because what you saw was the r-rated cut which was no pun intended butchered 
Oh, extremely butchered. I remember, uh, too, I was trying so hard to find it, but I, I could not. I remembered when New Line first got franchise, they did a thing where they were like, you know, the original slasher guy is back. And they had heads of Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. And they had a, a a guy who was dressed up like Leatherface came in with a chainsaw and cut the heads in half at like some big promotion for the movie. And I remember this was on like Entertainment Tonight or something. Do you think back it? Then. Do you think it was the guy that played Leatherface, R.A. Minohoff? No, I I don't think so because I remember the guy being kind of small. Okay. And uh, well, wasn't and and wasn't Leatherface? Um, was was what's his name? Leatherface uh, in in the third one was was Jason, if I'm not mistaken. Was, no, um... no, no. Kane Hodder was the stunt coordinator. Oh, okay. Leatherface was played by R. A. Minahoff. Kane Hodder was there on set, and he he said technically he played Leatherface in this because there are some of the like rolling around with Ken Faree and stuff like that. Some of that is Kane Hodder because he's the stunt man, but ninety percent of it is R. A. Minahoff. Then, uh, yeah, but I, I don't think it was because like they had like Lisa Gibbons or somebody there. Okay. And the guy who was playing, uh, who was dressed up like Leatherface, I remembered him being not that much taller than she was. So uh, I, I don't think it was. I think it just was somebody in a, you know, in an outfit. But I was so annoyed because I wanted to find that and just could not. But uh, but anyway, yeah, th- three, you know, TC- TCM Leatherface, I think is uh, is is good. It's not uh it's not as bad. Like if you see the uncut version, it's good. The R-rated version is just kind of dull and bleh. And see, okay, here's I have a I have a very special relationship with this movie. We're talking about how the different versions and how it was severely cut, right? Before this ever came out, I saw a test screening of this with the original ending and all of the gore in it. So I have a very special relationship. I think where I saw this movie before it was even done. And when I saw it on video, keep in mind the uncut version wasn't out yet, I was like, what the fuck is this? You know, because it's like, what? this isn't the movie I saw a test screening for. What happened? You want to know the true insult of this film? Jeff mm-hmm. Burr's ending. Remember the ending where Fredo is, for no apparent reason, back alive again? And Ken Faree has, even though we saw him get his head sawed in half, has just got a little scar on the back of his head? Mm-hmm. Jeff Burr didn't shoot that. Jeff Burr didn't even know about that ending until his contractually obligated premiere. So he first saw that they put a different ending on his film along with everybody else. Sounds to me like New Line didn't know how to treat people, huh? No, New Line, I have a love-hate relationship with them. David Scow's original script was considered unfilmable. He had Leatherface having taken a punk rocker's face so he leatherface has a pink mohawk throughout the whole thing he has various pieces of clothes on and he said it's very much it was very much of a more overt comedy like part two but still ungodly dark so then when he was forced to rewrite it new line all they cared about was whether jeff burr could bring this film in on time and on budget the way they put it was he after about four days they saw the dailies and they said can you give us the same level of quality but speed it up. So what they were saying was, we need you to move faster. We like what you're doing, but we need you to move faster. Do you know who the original director for this movie was supposed to be? You're, if, if you don't know, to the audience, if you don't know, you're going to be floored that this person actually wrote a treatment and was in talks to direct this. Peter Jackson. 
<laughs> that would have been uh, I, I again, it's one of those. How would it have affected his career? I would have oh man, I would love to have seen a Texas Chainsaw Massacre done by Peter Jackson, the old Peter Jackson. Or I guess technically the young Peter Jackson, the bad, the the bad taste, the bad alive. taste, meet the feebles, you know, right. dead alive Peter Jackson. This this film had had a lot of trouble. The MPAA, this is right when all of that the violence crap was coming out, and you know Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven was being just destroyed by the MPAA. And same thing with Texas Chainsaw Three. This film was given an X rating twenty six times before they finally got an R. And by then, whole scenes were... I mean, seriously, when you watch the difference between the R-rated cut and the unrated DVD, it the R-rated cut looks like the editor was asleep through half of this. It is so blatantly choppy that it's it's borderline unwatchable in its R-rated form. So, gee, it failed. Who'd have guessed? There was also a more cynical angle to the marketing of this, the soundtrack. This film was cross-marketed with a heavy metal label to try and sell the soundtrack. So you had bands like Law's Rocket and Death Angel and all that co-promoting the movie along with the movie promoting the soundtrack with all of these metal bands. Cecil, you and I are metal fans. We might not find that so bad, but when you listen to the commentary on the Laserdisc, you find out eh, New Line was a lot more interested in pushing the music than they were the movie. New Line was just, they really just screwed the pooch on this one. It's ridiculous how, how poorly they did it. Because that, that right there, I mean, that should be a slam dunk. You've got metal bands promoting a horror film. I mean, have music videos that are incorporating elements of the, uh, of the movie. Kind of like how Dokken did with uh, Dream Warriors, where they did the music video where they were intercut. Or with, Shocker. Or Shocker, yeah, uh, you know. Or, or not a metal movie, but uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey with uh, Megadeth and you uh, know. Empire Pictures Dungeon Master with Wasp. Yeah, so the, I mean, it's it's a corny thing, but it always kind of gets you like it probably did a nice job of helping to uh, push people into seeing the movie. Oh, you know, I really like the song and the but, music video is cool. And but but there's a slight problem. Again, going to the Laserdisc commentary, I haven't listened to the DVD one. I know it's not the same as the Laserdisc. Jeff Burr is not a heavy metal fan. Every time there's a metal song playing on the soundtrack, he starts to just bash the metal bands and like, oh, gee, they rhymed saw with saw. How original. It seemed like he was openly contemptuous of the fact that he had to work these heavy metal songs into the movie. That I don't think helped either. It probably did not. It made him somewhat just irritated with the whole procedure. That's the last thing you want as a director that just does not want to direct the movie anymore. And then just a little fun note, speaking of heavy metal, the set was immediately reused before they tore it down after they were done shooting for Alice Cooper's House of Fire video. And you can tell. You watch the just watch the trailer for this and then watch the House of Fire video. You go... Yeah, that's the same damn house. Which ending did you see? Did you ever see the uh, the real ending to this one? Because it's so radically different than than the theatrical ending, and unfortunately, the theatrical ending is the same one that's on the DVD. I mean, they they put the original ending on as an extra, as an alternate, but it's not attached to the movie. No, yeah, no, I've only ever just seen the theatrical. Okay, Fredo is still dead. Ken Faree is still dead, 
and you've got Kate Hodge walking after surviving all this along a lone Texas road. Remember that police officer that was hounding them at the beginning in the body pit scene? He pulls up and asks if she needs a ride, and then the little girl from the family, Jennifer Banco, sits up in the back seat and starts stabbing a little doll going, stab, 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 and then Kate Hodge just starts laughing maniacally and falls to her knees, implying that cop was a member of the family and why they've been able to get away with this for so long. That's a much better ending, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It didn't have enough punch, New Line executives thought. <sighs> It didn't have enough punch. So this film failed miserably. I like it personally. I, th I think it's, it's a fun movie. Viggo Mortensen is just amazing in this. Uh, I think Kate Hodge does a great job. I love I Kate the, Hodge. The, the, the effects are great. Ken Faree doesn't look like he's phoning it in. Joe, Un <laughs> Joe Unger looks just like he's having so much fun in this. And I don't know if this says something good or bad, but did you know that the text character is gay? Viggo Mortensen's character? <laughs> I, no, they, they talk about it on the, on the commentary. He has the one pink painted fingernail on his pinky finger. Uh -huh. he, he wears the apron, and he walks with a swish when he's back around with the rest of the family. Uh -huh. That was a subtle, he's gay. He was a little flamboyant. Yeah. Especially because so it's Viggo Mortensen. So then th this kind of killed the franchise for a while because New Line did not get the hit that they were expecting. And then... Unfortunately, Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1994, but it sat on the shelf for three years in a very tumultuous legal battle before finally being released as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. This time it was written and directed by the writer of the original, Kim Hinkle. The legal battle that struck up around this was it starred a then-unknown Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, both in really early roles. Because the film was having dis distribution problems, it was sitting on the shelf anyway. Then Matthew McConaughey went on to become famous after making A Time to Kill. Renee Zellweger went on to become famous for Jerry Maguire. Now both of them were ashamed of the film, and they actually sued to halt its release, saying, if you release this movie now, it will hurt our now big-budget careers. From my understanding, it was only McConaughey who uh, had his uh, his people try to stop the release of the film. I remember reading, reading that Zellweger wasn't happy about it, but maybe it was just McConaughey that sued. I think like she might not have been happy about it, but never did anything about it, whereas McConaughey's people were trying to get it stopped. I've actually seen, I think it was on like The Tonight Show or something, you know, long after she had became famous, where uh, they brought up Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and she actually had a really good, like, laugh at it you know she was like oh yeah you know i did that movie but hey you know we all get started somewhere and she seemed to be really cool about it whereas you know his people at least were trying to get this stopped do you know what's really funny about that his performance in the film is amazing i mean if for a film he doesn't want to be remembered for he was not half-assing it was he no he was all in man <laughs> he was all freaking in so th th that's where I don't buy this whole, I only made this because of the money and, you know, because I needed a credit. I don't buy that because usually that kind of talk is followed by a sleepwalking performance. He is in full Matthew McConaughey nuts mode in this movie. Yeah, like like he wasn't doing a Rooney Mara in the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street where she's sleepwalking through the whole freaking movie. No, he's... He looks like he's having fun, too. He's determined. I wonder if really... I, I wonder if it was 
him not so much having an issue with it, but just his agent was like, you know, well, you're not going to be able to be taken seriously if people see this movie. You know, you're you're now leading man material, and if people see this, it's going to tarnish your image and all that. I, if, if if people see Renee Zellweger be, having you beat the crap out of yourself with a robot leg and a TV remote. <laughs> I know, just they're having the remote control battle. Yeah, where, and he's he's trying to get to her. Ah, oh, it's hilarious. And see, that's what I don't get. Because, well, first of all, Kim Hinkle has reversed himself. When the film first came out to all these negative reviews, he said, "Oh, it, it was meant to be a parody." of the other stuff, you know, the film I wrote and the other films, this was meant to be a parody. Then in the early 2000s, he reversed himself and saying, no, this is the real sequel, and I meant this to be taken seriously. God damn it, stop laughing at it. Either he's bipolar or Kim Hinkle is just in ass cover mode with this movie either time. Yeah, who who knows? Uh, I, I personally, like, this is not a good movie. No, but it's I not. I, I personally enjoy it because it's so ridiculous. I mean, it's at it, one point, Renee Zellweger in a bad 80s evening gown stands up, yells at Leatherface, who is in full tranny mode, and he just sits down and goes. <laughs> and then how are you supposed to take that serious? And then let's not forget the fact that the uh, the entire family is in cahoots with the feds like the no, F- no, not even the feds there's like an x-files style conspiracy on well, here about teaching people fear and did you even get the implication of the ufos they made oh, like absolutely. a little reference to to ufos at the end and i'm like what is this supposed to be yeah it, they they had a whole weird conspiracy angle and uh, uh, yeah it just was bananas but it's it's one of those movies where it's like I can't recommend it because it's not a good movie, but, but you I can recommend it, it to believe it. Well, I can recommend it to the right kind of person. You know, it'd be like like there are certain people I know that if they hadn't seen it, I'm like, oh, you have to see this because you will not believe when when McConaughey is all upset and he just starts cutting himself and crying. And, uh, and it's, I, I'm yeah. actually thinking of the part where she tries to put the shotgun on him. He's <laughs> he's just losing his mind. Yeah, he was giving a great performance for a ridiculous movie. The scene where they're picking up the pizzas. And Renee Zellweger's in the trunk. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, the one, the one, uh, the hot chick is, is going and picking up the pizza. And she goes back and yells at her. Says, I can't breathe. Well, if will you stop if I give you a piece of pizza? Yeah. What the, what the, what the hell? It's fantastic. Well, see, but it seems like that, that lead into that kit or that Kim Hinkle was, was making a comedy but then there are other scenes that make you go, no, he was trying to be scary here. He failed, but he was trying. Yeah, I think this uh, it, it's kind of a, a good bit of unintentional comedy. Well, and then there, there's also the fact that he says this is the first real sequel. Texas Chainsaw 2 and 3 never happened, and this is a direct sequel to the first film. We're, we're going to bring that up again in a little bit, but <laughs> I think that's incredibly disingenuous. To Toby Hooper, Jeff Burr, and Kit Carson and David Scow, don't you? Yes and no. This film didn't do well at all. Like I said, it finally came out in '97, direct to home video. It was a flop. 
it, this thing did no business. And the franchise as a whole went into hibernation for almost 10 years. And I, got, I rented it like five times, though. Well, then Michael Bay's production company, Platinum Dunes, decided to pick up the franchise rights after after the 2000s. And in 2003, they released the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, directed by Marcus Nispel. I, I don't understand how this film was a hit. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, I thought, looked great. I've said it before, Cecil. I think Marcus Nispel would be a great cinematographer or assistant director. He's got a great eye. He's not a good director, though. This whole movie is shot like a music video by somebody who's, a, who's falling asleep. The characters have no character to them. It's sh- Even though it takes place in the 70s, it's shot like a 2003 movie, which really kind of makes a contrasting style and tone. The film has nothing going for it. For a remake of the classic Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this one seemed to revel in showing everything that Toby Hooper, whether he intended to or not, was wise enough to not show. I hated this film. I really did. I hated it. I don't know how this film became a hit. Uh, I'm with you too, man. I hated the the remake. I, I don't. I'm more uh, along the lines of I do not think that uh, Nispel is a good director. I think that the whole movie it did have too much polish. Uh, it had too much. But like, it, lo- it looked polished like a music video, though, didn't it? But yeah, but I mean, but not in a. I don't know. It just like it hit, the movies that I I've seen. I believe I've seen all of his movies because I saw this. I saw Conan. Uh, I Friday saw the 13th, Friday the Thirteenth, and it's just they're too glitzy. Like it just doesn't. I mean, I understand uh, there there are certain movies where that works, but in, in the cases of this, like they all kind of look the same. Like you could take probably elements from each movie and kind of incorporate them into another movie, and it would look like you wouldn't be able to tell which movie was which. It just it was bland. The characters were uninteresting. Like you said, with they he was uh, showing us all the blood and guts that you thought you were going to be seeing with the first one. And I have a feeling that that's why it was such a success because at the time Jessica Biel was really just starting to take off and um, torture porn was on the rise. I hate the term torture porn though. It's just, you can't deny it. You can't deny it was on the rise and this fit right into it though. Yeah. Kind I don't know. It's, um, it just it was it was a lot of it was a lot of unnecessary blood and guts. This is coming from somebody who likes you know movies with blood and guts. I, it just, I, but it, I, I think it I think, was it was decent. It was dull. It was it was I, just. I, I have one word that I think will sum this up, and I, I think you'll agree with me. The entire film was gratuitous. Yeah, and I don't I, like gratuitous and can unnecessary work, but it just. Uh, I mean, and I'm not just saying this because I'm such a fan of the original and I felt like it was, uh, you know, it was it was disrespectful to make remake this because there have been remakes of classic films that have worked. But this was one where it just did not work. It was too Hollywood for a movie that's supposed to be really gritty and dirty. And also they took Leatherface who the the uh, as i said in in my one video the thing that was the scariest about leatherface was he he wasn't this unstoppable monster he was a grown man with the mind of a child so he didn't know what he was doing was wrong and that's what played into making him so scary yeah, whereas uh, this texas, Chain- texas chainsaw 3 has that great scene where he's got a speaking spell and it shows a mm-hmm. picture of a person 
and he just keeps typing in F O O D and he's starting to get pissed off because it's telling him he it's wrong. That right there is a I mean that is a David Scow scene right there because I think David Scow is a great writer. That's the kind of stuff that people don't take away from Texas Chainsaw Three and, and Texas Chainsaw the remake decided to discard all that that he's a sadistic monster now yeah they just made him into another slasher he's just this monster and, and the one scene he, where he's and, chasing, and the next, he breaks through the door oh and, no i'm thinking in the next film where he actually becomes a michael myers teleporter where he teleports into the back seat of her car even though she was running away from him <laughs> you know he becomes generic slasher villain he really did. They they did their best to, to make him into just bland, generic slasher. You could have put anybody into that movie, and it wouldn't have made a difference. What do you think about my thing about how, even though it's set in the 70s, it's shot like a 2000s movie, which kind of makes the style almost meaningless? Yeah, it, it kind of... Uh... That is one of those tricky things when you're doing uh, movies that take place in a different, I mean, aside from if you're going into the future, but if you're going into the past, and especially if you're doing this kind of movie, there should be some element that makes it like that time frame. I mean, very occasionally you can do a movie from the past, but use the uh, stylings of the future and it'll work. But a lot of times it just makes it stick out. And if you don't see like if they do a job of kind of masking the clothes or like the vehicles and stuff, it almost you forget that you're watching a movie that took place back then. Yeah, because, you know, because of the fact that it's shot. So 2000s, you know, half the way through the movie, I'm going, why don't they just call someone on their cell? Because this is other than the hairstyles, this isn't actually set in the 70s, is it? They had Jessica Biel doing the the shirt tie thing, which I appreciated because she is beautiful. But you're not gonna tell she's in great shape. All right, I have I, I Jessica Biel doesn't do anything for me. Okay, well I I'd like girls that are skinny, and uh, I I thought she looked really good. But it was just one of those things where never saw anybody in the '70s that dressed like that. <laughs> this film became a huge hit, Cecil. And I'm honestly surprised it took them three years, but then they decided to make not a sequel, but a prequel for the weirdest reason. Arlie Ermey is one of the villains in the remake, and he's arguably one of the main characters. People loved his character. His character of the, in quotes, sheriff, the sadistic sheriff, was one of the things that fans just loved. Everybody took away that Arlie Ermey's character was amazing and awesome. So they said, well... Let's go back and have a movie based around Arlie Ermey. I I have to say, for Texas Chainsaw, the beginning, Leatherface isn't even the main character. This is clearly an Arlie Ermey movie, isn't it? This is all about his character, isn't it? Well, I only uh, this is the one where I only saw a little bit of, so I'll say yes. So this time, yes, Leatherface is in it, but it also gives you the unnecessary origin of Oh, see, because he was born with a birth defect and he was picked on in school. That's why Leatherface is the way he is. It's almost like they wouldn't have, like, Rob Zombie didn't learn from this with the Halloween remake. It takes all of the scariness away from your villain if you give him that type of a backstory, goddammit. I thought this film, I, I really like one of the cast members. I really like Lee Turgeson as the biker in this, but I think he's just wasted in the film. But again, this one suffers from the same problems. Even though Marcus Nispel didn't direct this one, it looks the same. 
It's got that bland music video, over-stylized, very 2000s look, and it takes place even earlier in the 70s. I don't know. To me, Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning is the definition of a pointless film, that you just go, why? Why was this film made? Well, it was made because the first, well, the first remake just made a ton of money, and uh, they were just looking to repeat that. And they thought that uh, by taking uh, Arlie Ermey's character and focusing on that, that that would just work for audiences. And uh, even though it was only a couple years later, uh, I think even then audiences were starting to kind of look a little skeptical at uh, at the remakes. So I, I would uh, hope so. Yeah. And so this one, it just kind of it just didn't work and it flopped big time. Well, it didn't flop. It had a $13 million budget and it made $51 million, so that's well, hardly that's hardly a flop. Well, in the studio's eyes, it was a flop because... Because the, the first, first one, one had $9.5 million and made over $100 million. yeah. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like when you put more money into something and then, uh, you know, it doesn't... You know, you can, yeah, you get a return that's half of the one before it. That's not good sign. Which might be why this kind of went into hibernation yet again. And then we got, now here's the fight you've all have all been waiting for, Texas Chainsaw 3D. Again, you've got, we're ignoring all the sequels, this is a sequel only to the first film, but I think this is the worst film in the whole franchise. Texas Chainsaw 3D is dumb. That's, that's the, I mean, at least the remake wasn't dumb. At least Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Next Generation wasn't dumb. It was bad. But this one is dumb. And it, it, it thinks you're dumb, too. It says, yes, this is a direct sequel, completely following the events from 1974. And we have a little baby in this that was born in 1974. And it takes place in 2013. And she's a teenager because f*** you. That's why. They add all these extra family members that weren't there. They add all these idiotic characters. And I think, to me, the worst moment in this movie was the, I guess, point that blood is stronger than anything else. Leatherface is trying to kill her throughout the whole movie. He's butchered all of her friends. As soon as they find out that they're related by blood, not only does he stop trying to kill her, she throws him his chainsaw and goes, Get him, cuz! It was at that point I went, Just f*** you, movie! F*** you! <laughs> Absolutely f***ing love the Texas Chainsaw 3... Or, or should I say Texas Chainsaw 3D. I seriously, I hold it right up there. It's no, It's nowhere near as good as the original. However... I put it on par with the sequel, which I know you think is nuts, but I genuinely enjoy this movie. And the thing was, this was one where I didn't see it for a while, and I had so many people telling me, oh my god, this is the worst movie ever, this is the worst movie of the year. And one night, I was I, I was getting ready to go to sleep, I, and a lot of times before I go to sleep, I'll watch a movie on Netflix, I'll watch like a half hour and kind of drift off. I saw that this had just come on on instant. So I was like, ah, you know what? I'll start watching this, see how bad it is. And I ended up staying up and watching the entire thing and just was like, holy crap, this is good. I don't know what the hell everyone was talking about. I don't mind the time lapse thing too much. Yes, it was silly. The fact that they are trying to hide it from you, that mm -hmm. tells you they have contempt for you and they think you are so stupid that you won't notice. 
I saw the movie three times and I didn't and I before I noticed I wasn't even thinking about it. But I, I as I said in, in the video, I was distracted because Alexandra Daddario is stunning. I, it just didn't it, I don't know. It didn't hit me. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Hey. Oh, yeah. Hey, this <laughs> she should be in her 40s. And but, I, uh, I, I watched I watched some of the extras on the DVD. And I think the the worst thing about this movie I think I actually hate it more after listening to the directors because they think they made a great film that Texas Chainsaw fans would truly appreciate. They 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 seem to be completely unaware of the whole we have contempt for you and we changed this and they actually seem to be unaware of how bad of a film that they made. I actually feel sorry for how stupid they are. Yes, I know how arrogant that makes me sound. Well, see, the thing is, they like I'm in agreement with them. I think that they made a movie that Texas Chainsaw fans would enjoy more so than the, the glossy remakes. Except for the fact that almost universally this film is hated by Texas Chainsaw fans. So they did not make a film Texas Chainsaw fans can enjoy. But I am a Texas Chainsaw fan and I enjoyed You're it. The minority. Huh? I think that honestly, because the movie did OK. And I think that there are, I'm not going to say everybody, yes, there are a lot of people who don't like the film, but I do think that there are a lot of people that are just bandwagon jumping that are, oh, I heard this movie was awful. And so automatically, no, I actually, I I actually watched it and went, yeah, this is as bad as I, I mean, I'll admit I heard it was bad beforehand. Yeah, this really is as bad as, as everyone said it was. And I actually, like I said, I was angry. At the whole get him cuz moment. You know, th- that's where the movie turned on me. Gunnar Hansen loved the get him cuz line. So just throw just for the record, the friends they made despicable. The the one guy she didn't know, Kenny. So he got killed, doesn't matter. Then her her friend and her boyfriend were cheating on her. So when they died, it wasn't as it was like, eh. You know, so that was kind of a... that's the worst kind of writing is when you write the characters so the audience wants them to die for slasher movies that is the worst laziest kind of writing you're supposed to as the viewer not want these people to die so when the killer gets them you go oh i really liked them not get them get them get them it's a it's a mix i i think that uh it was kind of a means to an end because they had to have uh, a body count to a certain degree. They couldn't kill her, and it wasn't a way to bring in more superfluous characters. So to me, my final thoughts on on the franchise is, I think the first three are good, or at least in the third case, in the case of the third movie, if you see it uncut, is pretty good. After that, to me, the franchise was completely rudderless. It was just flailing around, desperately trying to find some way to right the ship, all the while taking on more and more water. And I don't care that the remake made a ton of money, that it made over $100 million on a $10 million budget. It was the wrong thing to do. The first one is an absolute mandatory classic. If you like horror movies and you haven't seen it, you absolutely need to watch it. Two, I think, is is great. It's just a really enjoyable film. Three, you got to watch the uncut version and see it the way that it was 
closest to the way that it was supposed to be. Four is wonderful in its absurdity. And then the remake is garbage. I haven't seen enough of the prequel to really give a full vote. But I, from what I saw, I didn't like. And then Texas Chainsaw, I love. If, if Cecil is going to go into hiding and start eating people, where would you allow Grandpa to drink blood? <laughs> I would allow Grandpa to drink blood. Goodbadflix.com as well as GeekJuiceMedia.com. I'm not going to do a get him cuz because screw that. If you want to use a remote control on my leg, you can go to 1201beyond.com, 1201beyond at gmail.com, or I'm also at geekjuicemedia.com. The Saw is family, people.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.